Good morning. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leewood campus this morning. We're glad you're here. What do you think about those Royals? Pretty amazing. Now, if we could just get the Chiefs playing the same way, right? That's the deal. Well, Liz and I recently attended a wonderful movie. Uh, actually, it was uh, really surprisingly good, at least in our opinion. Uh, the movie's called The Intern. Have you seen it? Uh, I mean, Robert De Niro is an amazing actor, and the story is of a seven-year-old widowed retiree who, after playing many rounds of golf and visiting his grandchildren only so many times, realizes there's this massive hole in his life. Each morning he looks in the mirror and what stares back at him is a lack of meaning and purpose. What is he going to do? Well, he sees an ad for a really upscale, young, entrepreneurial fashion company and uh, they're offering non-paid internships. I won't tell you all the details, you should see the movie. But I will tell you that he has given an interview, which is funny in itself, and yes, he is the new intern that arrives at the business. I won't say more because it's a fun comedy, but it's also a movie that not only makes you laugh, but touches the deepest longings of your heart. Brilliantly done. We find in this movie, The Intern, the themes that we find meaning in connecting to others and contributing to our world. This should not surprise us because perhaps one of the most brilliant books of the 20th century, written by Holocaust survivor and brilliant psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, the book is entitled In Search of Meaning. And Frankl describes the human creature as fundamentally a meaning creature. And Frankel, in his research, said that humans, all of us, young, old, in between, educated, uneducated, male, female, all of us seek meaning, both through the relationships we have in life and the work we do. The intertwining quest of the human heart, friends, is one for intimacy and accomplishment. We are hardwired for both. The movie The Intern reminds us that no matter who we are, our education, ethnicity, gender, we long to contribute. We long to accomplish things, to make a difference. We long to live a fruitful life. But the question on the heels of that assertion is, what does a fruitful life look like? If you've read the Bible much or studied Jesus' life much, you know that he talked a lot about fruitfulness. He told stories about it. He said things like, a tree is known by its fruit, or by their fruits you'll know them. Jesus spoke a great deal about fruitfulness. And as I listen across the church in America and many followers of Jesus, what stuns me is we often speak about the importance of faithful lives, but how seldom we talk about the importance of living fruitful lives. Can we really be faithful without being fruitful? Can we really love God and love our neighbor by only being faithful? The truth of the matter from the biblical text that we're going to look at this morning is that the fruitfulness of your life matters. And if you want to be faithful, you have to be fruitful. Now, last week we began our message series on neighborly love. 
And we looked at Jesus' teaching of what is called by Christians the great commandment, which is a call to love God and love our neighbor. And if you missed last week's message, may I encourage you to listen to the podcast because it sets the trajectory of this six-week conversation. Let me just say that last week we looked at a story of Jesus called the Good Samaritan, and we unpacked a very important truth that neighborly love calls us not only to compassion, yes, but also to capacity. So today in our exploration of neighborly love, we begin to press into another important truth from the very beginning of God's story, and that is that you and I were created to live a fruitful life. A life, yes, of creativity, yes, of productivity and responsibility. And in and through our creativity and productivity, we can love our neighbor as God wants us to love our neighbor. So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Here in Genesis chapter 1, we uncover two foundational truths. First, we're going to look at you were created to be creative. You were created to be creative. And secondly, you are called to be fruitful. Let's press into the first truth. You are created to be creative. Now, if you have your Bible open in Genesis chapter 1, you heard it read. Now, in verses 26 and 27, it is framed around the idea of the sixth day of creation. We are ushered into the sixth day of creation. And here we see something very distinct in the biblical narrative. The unique distinction is this English word, image, and it's repeated three times, and we must not miss its importance. And I fear we do, because in English, in our contemporary context, when we hear image, what do we think of? Usually, we think of a negative connotation, like someone's really into their image, right? It's like image is often kind of a flaky lack of authenticity of a person, like a politician. And if you're a politician, that's okay. But politicians often pander or create images, right? So they get a lot of votes, don't really say anything, but think everybody likes them, right? Or a colleague at work who wants to project a certain image to rise in the corporate ladder. Or a peer at school kids who's, you know, trying to ramp up the cool factor from day one. Most of us think of image in an inauthentic way. But here in Genesis, it's just the opposite. Because image points to how we were created, to how we are authentically created to be. An image in this biblical text means two essential things, two essential things. First, it means that we were created to have a relationship with God. It is a relational idea, but not just relational, it is also a reflectional idea, that we were not only created for intimacy, but to accomplish things. And imaging God, we are called to be productive, to do things. See, because you and I were created in God's image means that our lives really matter. They really matter. They matter more than we can ever imagine. And it also means that we are designed to connect with God relationally and reflect God in all we do. So this is what I want us to grasp as we enter this text. Our relational connection with God is essential for us to reflect God. Without connection to God, there is little reflection of God. So connection and reflection capture the image of God, and each of us are made in God's image. Now, at our recent Common Good Conference, economist, Yale economist Brian Fickert reminded all of us that human poverty is not merely material poverty, it is first and foremost relational poverty. 
which, let me tell you, regardless of our checkbook size, includes every one of us here. Brian made this point, and I, I think it's up on the screen here. I want you to see it carefully. He said, as an economist, he says, poverty is rooted in broken relationships. So the solution to poverty is rooted in the power of Jesus' death and resurrection to put all things in right relationship again. What Brian is saying is that the work of neighborly love involves the restoration of our creation design. That is, to bear God's image by being connected to Him and also about reflecting who God is to the world. And here in Genesis 1 and 2, the primary way we reflect God in the text is that we reflect a God who works. Here God is a working God who is productive, who is amazingly fruitful, who is unimaginably creative. That's the focus of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, there are many things that impact our lives because we are made in God's image, but the heart of the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative is about our work and productivity and creativity. Parents, grandkids, grandchildren, you know what it's like, and grandparents to be together and to be creative, <clears throat> right? Parents love watching their little kids be creative. You don't have to teach them that. They're hardwired, right? The stories you tell <clears throat> ignite their imaginations. You watch the creativity of their play, don't you? The pictures they draw are masterpieces, of course, and they end up on your what? Your refrigerator door. The castles they make, the jet fighters they make, the forts they build in the basement or in the backyard, all scream that these little critters are wired for creativity. Kids, how many of you love to build fun things with Legos? I mean, there's a whole Legos park for Pete's sakes near San Diego. I mean, Legos are big deals, right? And adults, we love to do it with kids, don't we? It's like God created the world, giving all of us a massive pile of Legos to work with. That's Genesis 1 and 2. That's what it is. See, we didn't make the Legos, but the potential of what we can make with the Legos is awesome. That's God's design. When we create, we reflect God and we love our neighbor. No matter our age, God created us to be creative and in that to serve others and to make things. Yet I fear that many of us, and I hear this so often and it really bugs me. Can I just say, <laughs> say I'm not creative. I want to say, I'll say it in a gentle way, baloney. You may not be a notable artist, an esteemed writer, a Hollywood star. You may not be a Steve Jobs in business. That might be a good thing in both ways. But you should never dismiss your creativity. Each one of us has the capacity to be creative and reflect God and bless our neighbor with our creativity. I watch you. Some of you are amazing at starting new business enterprises. It's just you're hardwired to start new businesses. I was with someone in Denver this week and speaking in this very successful business. He had started 70 businesses. That's creativity. Or some of you make meals that are amazing. I mean, I want to come to your house. Some of you solve computer problems. You use your imagination for the common good. Creativity is a capacity we all have. 
But you are not only created to be creative, you are created to be fruitful. Look at verse 28, a very important verse in Genesis 1. Let me read it carefully. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, if you want to impress your friends, maybe depress them. This is what theologians call the cultural mandate. Wow. Sounds important. It is. In other words, what Genesis is saying is that this is like our earthly job description. It's our fundamental responsibility as image bearers of God to press into this mandate. Now, why do we call it a mandate? Those of you who love grammar know, and this is extremely unusual in the Old Testament. Its importance I cannot overstate. Its grammar screams at us in the Hebrew text. Very seldom, I encourage you to look at this in all the Old Testament, where you see five imperative verbs strung together on a link chain. You see it? Imperatives are not options. They're not suggestions. They're hardwired into who we are. Notice the five. See the text? Be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, and have dominion. Five of them. Think of it this way. It's like the locomotive on a train. The first imperative, translated in English, be fruitful, which is the Hebrew word para, pulls the lion's share of the weight of meaning here with all the other imperatives following along in tow and adding great breadth of understanding to the fullness of what the Genesis author is trying to communicate. Now, when you hear the word or the phrase in English, it's one word in Hebrew, be fruitful, what comes to your mind? Well, don't say everything. But it probably has something to do with having babies or making babies. Right? And indeed, that's an important part of God's design of creation. But we must not miss something very important here. The cultural mandate is more than just having babies. This is woven in the text, the context The whole Genesis 1 and 2 text screams this truth. To be fruitful, hear me carefully, is about being procreative. Yes, absolutely. But it is also about being productive. Absolutely. We see this all through the Old Testament. For just one example, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 4. We read these words, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Do you notice how the word fruit emerges? It's the same Hebrew word. The fruit of the womb is procreativity, that's children. But notice the emphasis on the work, fruit of the ground, the fruit of your cattle. One of the messages the church has often given people who are single or those who do not have children is somehow their lives are not complete. And if you have been hurt by this faulty theology and glaring pastoral insensitivity, can I tell you how sorry I am? If we understand what the cultural mandate is saying in the text, we see that fruitfulness is more than having children. It is also about being productive in our work. 
Let's remember that Jesus lived a sinless life and never had children. Hmm. While not all of us can be procreative, all of us can be productive. That's what Genesis is speaking about. Each of us was created with work in mind. Whether your work is paid or not paid, your work honors others and adds value to others. You are embracing God's design for you by living a fruitful, creative, productive life. Remember, the biblical understanding of work is not primarily compensation. It is contribution to God and His good world. And you and I can live a fruitful life even if we don't get a paycheck because fruitfulness is about cultivating blessing from the created order. It's about adding value and honor to others. It's about building our capacity for neighborly love. And you may retire from your paycheck, but you never retire from your work. You never retire from neighborly love. While fruitfulness is more than creativity and productivity, it is not less than this. Productivity is a vital aspect of fruitfulness. And often our productivity brings with it economic value through which we love our neighbor within our economic system. Now, when we hear the word economic, especially a pastor talking about that, what comes to our mind? What comes to your mind as you're sitting there? You may think of spreadsheets of data, supply and demand curves, if you're really sophisticated, Leffler curves, all that stuff. Abstract theories, or a class or a textbook you tried to wade through. Economists deal with lots of theory, lots of data. And it's a complex discipline, no doubt about it. But I love how economists Victor Clare and Robin Clay connect the complex world of economics to your everyday life in the world. Here's what they write. Work supplies the physical, psychological, artistic, and religious needs of communities, extending to the ends of the earth. Furthermore, through work, we create abundance out of which what? We help meet the needs of others. Our fruitfulness and productivity matter to God, and they matter to your neighbor. Isn't it fascinating that the whole book of Psalms We've looked at those as a church family not long ago. Psalm 1 sets the whole framing of 150 psalms. What is the theme? That the wise person is what? Like a fruitful tree that bears its fruit in its season. That a life of wisdom is a life of fruitfulness and productivity. We see this all over the Old Testament. One of the great places is the book of Proverbs. Proverbs ends in this amazing portrait. Do you remember if you've read it? This extraordinary woman, a wise woman whose life is fruitful, and she is praised for being a woman of virtue and industriousness, both domestically and, yes, in the marketplace of business of her day. Proverbs 31 describes the the fruit of her hands, her amazing productivity, her neighborly love. Go look at it. And all of Proverbs ends with this picture of this amazing woman who is fruitful in life, in her work. Verse 31 ends. The whole book of Proverbs ends here. It's the crescendo. Give her the fruit of her hands. It's the same Hebrew word. And let her work, or works, praise her in the gate. That means the marketplace. Wow. We were created to be fruitful. 
You were created to be fruitful, to be productive, to add value to the world in and through your work, to love your neighbor in and through your fruitfulness. And while theologians, we often use the word fruitfulness because that's more closely tied to the text, economists use words like productivity, opportunity, and wealth, and they are connected. Now, what comes to your mind, still with me, when, you say, when I say the word wealth? For many of us, it may connote negative thoughts. Usually we think of wealth as that which someone else has. <laughs> right? The wealthy are those who we perceive to have more money or resources material than we do. But wealth properly understood, theologically and economically, means value. Value. And wealth creation is a vital part of our creation design and cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and 2. It's all over the text. Author Andy Crouch makes the point that God invites us into this creative process and that God actually allows us to add value to create wealth to make better things than God did in original creation. Jesus will later say, greater works will you do than I do. What did he mean? Andy Crouch, who again is a friend of Christ's community and a friend, he says, God made wheat. We make bread. You love bread? I know it's got a bad name these days because of all the carbs, but smelling fresh bread is like smelling heaven, isn't it? Wow. He says, grapes are good. God made grapes. We make wine. It's very good. Or think about this in our context today. We take sand, silicon, and make computer chips out of it. Unbelievable. Who'd have thunk it? Is that amazing? We were designed to do that. And we're not done doing that, should the Lord tarry. See, throughout the history of the church, if you study this carefully, and there are many good scholars, I could commend to you later on an email if you have questions. There are two main divergent views of wealth. One basically says that wealth and wealth creation is intrinsically corrupting and must be avoided at all costs. The other view is that wealth and wealth creation is essentially very good. It is a part of our design and cultural mandate, but in a fallen world can be perilous and must be carefully stewarded for the love of God and neighbor. The latter view, I believe, is much more supported by Scripture. Martin Luther did too. I mean, good hands with the Protestant reformers. This is what he said. And he connects money and wealth with neighborly love. Brilliantly so, Martin Luther did. He says, if silver and gold are things evil in themselves, he's pushing back against that unbiblical view that was common in his day, then those who keep away from them deserve to be praised. Or is he saying, if wealth is intrinsically evil, poverty is intrinsically good, material poverty. But if they are good creations of God, he's been reading Genesis 1 and 2, which we can use both for the needs of our neighbor and for what? The glory of God. See, however we understand wealth or wealth creation or value creation and the monetary exchange and allocation that often accompanies it in an economic system, there are two dangerous distortions for the Christian to avoid. The first distortion is what I call the poverty gospel. The poverty gospel is a distortion of the biblical text. It somehow teaches that the greater the material poverty of a person, the more spiritual the person. That somehow material poverty brings spiritual riches like Sazam. 
and that material abundance inevitably brings spiritual poverty. That's just not what the Bible teaches at all. The second dangerous distortion is on the other side of the continuum. You still with me? It's not just the poverty gospel, it's the prosperity gospel. And someone believes the creation of material wealth is a sign of God's blessing on your life. And that God wants everyone to be materially prosperous. Jesus, hear me carefully, parts company immediately with both the poverty gospel and the prosperity gospel. Jesus calls us to a life of wise stewardship of material wealth in an obedient lifestyle of diligent work, fruitfulness, productivity, and responsibility. Value creation or wealth creation introduces us to a very important biblical principle that is a component of economic flourishing. What is it? See, sometimes we wrongly think that there is a, think about it, a fixed pie of wealth or fruitfulness in the world. In other words, that if there's only so many pieces of pie, material pie or wealth pie, we need to just keep cutting smaller and smaller pieces as the population grows. So everybody gets some. But we need to see through the biblical text and good economic thinking that God designed the world so we can make more and more pies. That's it. Does this make sense? The key principle we see both in the cultural mandate and in economic theory is that wealth creation is an exponential dynamic. What do we mean by that? This means that the work of cultivating the garden, Genesis 2, uh, uh, 15, the Garden of Eden, was a call to take the raw materials of God's pristine creation and create something that wasn't there before and multiply it many times over for the glory of God and the flourishing of a growing humanity. I'm reminded of this when I, when I see these signs. I don't know if they're still up, but I've seen them for many, many years. When you drive through the breadbasket of America, a lot of the states, like Iowa, I see it in Kansas, Nebraska, there is signs that herald the remarkable advancement in agriculture to feed the world. Have you seen them? I mean, they always stand out to me. It's like one Kansas farmer or one Nebraska farmer feeds 70 people and then, and you. Yeah. That's Genesis 1. See, whether it's food production or energy extraction, whatever it is. It's stunning to think of the creation of value and wealth that is taking place in our world the last 150 years. One of my good friends is an economic historian, Dr. P.J. Hill, great guy. Describes remarkable historical changes in the mid-1800s in terms of wealth and wealth creation and health around the world. Stunning. Growing up, and some of you are going to think, who is this guy? He's that old. But growing up, I remember as a young kid, early middle school to late elementary school, hearing everybody talk about a book out of Stanford, The Population Bomb. You remember that? <laughs> Ehrlich. The thesis of this book was, this was written in the 1960s. By 1980s, there would be massive starvation in the world because of the growing population. What's the growing What's the population today in the world? 7.3 billion and counting. If you look at the clock, it just goes like this. The population bomb was a big bust. 
And one of the unsung good stories in the last decade is that the free market economy, yes, with all its challenges and some abuses, sure, has lifted about a billion people in the world from desperate poverty. Of course, there is much more to be done. One of my favorite economists I read cover to cover is an African-American economist named Thomas Sowell. I commend him to you. He celebrates the goodness of this free market global economic growth for the world. And he writes this. Ultimately, it is economic prosperity which makes possible for billions of dollars to be devoted to the less fortunate. See, there are many material things as well as artistic things, if you want to call them things, right, that we enjoy every day. Because others have used their creativity in creating things, and our economic system allows us, imperfectly of sure, to allocate them and obtain these things and enjoy them every day. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week, this web of collaboration that we're all a part of. Of course, hear me carefully, there is not a perfect economic system because we are going to hit Genesis 3 soon. We live in a fallen world. Wealth can be abused and corrupted, no question about it. And it is. An economic system is tied to whether or not a virtuous and good people are immersed in it. And let's not forget that both poverty and wealth bring with it their unique challenges. Greed is not about what you have, it's what has you, regardless of what you have. See, pride, greed, corruption can attach itself to both of those who are materially rich and those who are materially poor. Proverbs says this over and over again. For example, we often talk about the danger of wealth. Proverbs talks about the danger of poverty, material poverty. Proverbs 38 says, grant me neither, it's a prayer, very rare in the Proverbs, grant me neither poverty nor riches. Why? Because there's dangers of both. Riches that I forget you and where this came from. And poverty, lest I steal to survive and dishonor you, God, and violate your commandments. Proverbs also speaks a great deal about slothfulness and the lack of productivity. And we're going to see more of that in this series. We must be really careful, friends, of two dead end kind of thinking on this. Dead end number one is the tendency for many of us is those who don't have as much as I do are lazy. Or some perversions don't have enough faith. If they really love God, they'd have more. It's a dead end. It's faulty thinking. But don't we often go there? The second one is the other side. Those who have materially more are automatically greedy and selfish. I have to tell you, I have worked with all kinds of people in the world economically. <laughs> and there are wealthy people, material wealthy people, that are extremely generous and some that aren't. And people who are extremely poor are extremely stingy and extremely generous. It's not about how much we have, it's what has us. Genesis chapter 1 reminds us we were created to be fruitful, to add value to the world. Wealth creation is a good thing because through it we have an increased capacity to love our neighbor and honor God. Could it be that the fruitfulness of our lives, friends, reveals a good deal about the faithfulness of our hearts? Could it be that the Bible's teaching about sloth has much more significance and importance than we ever realized? Not only to ourselves, but to our neighbor 
who looks to us to add value and love them through what we do every day. Whether that neighbor is in India or next door in Kansas City. Frederick Buechner is a wonderful writer. It was a wonderful writer who's with the Lord now. But he reminds us of our calling, a calling of fruitfulness. And he makes this brilliant point. He says, there is a place where the world's hunger and your gladness meet. Yes. Each one of us is called to contribute, to love our neighbor both with compassion and, yes, economic capacity, to live a fruitful life. Each one of us is designed to make a difference, to contribute to God's good world and to our neighbor's well-being. See, being productive is an important way we bear the image of God and love others. This is why Rabbi Paul, Apostle Paul, says one of the most stunning things in 2 Thessalonians, someone who is unwilling, not unable, unwilling to work should not eat. Rabbi Paul knew Genesis 1 and 2. So how do you become a more fruitful person? Let me raise two questions of reflection as we close. What is your character telling you? What is your character telling you? See, fruitfulness is not just about how we add value to others and what we do. It is about the kind of person we are becoming. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, describes the fruitfulness of an apprentice of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit of the Holy Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy Spirit empowers us to live a fruitful life of character through which great productivity and fruitfulness flow. We must not miss that a life of growing Christ-likeness will not only be a life of growing fruitfulness of character, but will be a life of growing productivity. They go hand in hand. Human flourishing is not only about how we add value to others, but about the kind of people we are and are becoming in loving God more and loving our neighbor out of the gratitude of what Jesus has done for us. We are not productive to earn merit for God. We are productive because Jesus has done all the work for us in dying on the cross. We live a life of joyful gratitude and productivity. Not to please God, Jesus has already done that for us on the cross, but out of gratitude and love. Secondly, what is your capacity telling you? Let me just ask some basic questions. In your job, if you have a paid job, in your season of life right now, are you becoming a more fruitful worker? Are you doing your job better every day? Are you gaining greater skill in what you do? If you're a mechanic, financial planner, whatever you're, a physician, a doc, a dentist, whatever it is. What kind of job reviews are you getting at work? That matters to God. And it matters to those you serve with and to your neighbor and to the world. You may be in a season in life where you're not getting a paycheck. So what does growing in fruitfulness and capacity to love your neighbor look like for you? Students, if you are in school, are you taking the job of learning seriously? What do your grades tell you? If you're a stay-at-home spouse, your most important neighbors are the children you are raising. Growing fruitfulness may mean more time for prayer in your older years or volunteering in the community or the local church. It might be caring for your grandchildren. Jesus the carpenter said those who abide in him live fruitful lives of good work. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much para, much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. 
The gospel speaks to the productive work we do every day. And it calls us to both a life of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Because a faithful life is a fruitful life. A fruitful life that makes a big difference in our world. I was just looking for fast life and I got mixed up in drugs. I ended up getting caught and I was sentenced to uh, prison life. But before I went, you know, I had an understanding of the Lord. I just didn't live it. Once I got in prison, it gave me all the time I needed to study. Through my study, I realized that the Lord has blessed me with the talents of uh, being a mechanic. And once upon my release, I continued. I know in the scripture it says to, to, to honor everything that you do as you're doing it for the Lord. So every morning I pray about my customers. I pray about my work. If I come into some kind of a problem that I can't fix, I stop and I pray about it and I'll just put it in God's hands and it just seems like he's there helping me. I was going through a really bad addiction to heroin. I was going to rehab at the same time and he kind of was my extra support. He really has helped me stay sober and get me through it. And he was interested in knowing how much mechanic knowledge I had. And I told him I wanted to learn more. And he said, well, if, if you want, I'd be more than happy to employ you as well. And you can kind of be by my side and hand me tools and just watch. And then once we get to a place where you have enough knowledge, we can start fixing cars together. Uh, one day he handed me two keys and said, these are yours. I'm going to make you manager of the shop. I feel like this business is the Lord's, and I believe he just entrusted me with everything that I have, and he has opened all kinds of opportunity and doors for me, and, and uh, if it consists of working in an automotive field to help people, that's what I'll do.